weren't sure, which is to say that 89% of Americans said, yeah, there's a God, but I'm not really sure who he is, you know? And now, and 11% said there, well, I don't believe there is a God, and I'm not sure, so the, the number was quite small. In 2012, 36% of Americans say there is no God, or they're not sure. The culture's changed. And with the changing of the culture, we've seen rises in all of these other areas. They, if you ask the psychiatrist, why has the stress levels gone up? They don't really know. They're like, oh, we're working more. You know, Why is there more hopelessness in our society? Well, we don't know. Why are we more medicated today than we've ever been in the past? We're the most medicated nation in the, con- in the world. We're, we're, you know, pharmaceutical companies love the United States because we're a multi-billion dollar market. We got drugs for everything, man. You don't need to buy them on the street. Your doctor's your drug dealer. You know? It's true. I need a drug for this. No problem. Go get it. You know? Need to sleep? We'll get you to sleep. Need to be awake? We'll get you to be awake. Need to be calm? We'll get you calm. Need to be excited? We'll get you excited. What do you need? What do you need? And we don't understand why that is. And what happens is, is that when man draws, when mankind draws away from the Lord, or when we don't actually acknowledge him or come into a relationship with him, what ultimately happens is hopelessness sets in. And when there's hopelessness, there's lo- anxiety goes up, and so does stress. This is among Christians. So they survey Christians too, those who believe Jesus is who he says he is, 65% of Christians believe the Bible is the Word of God. 65%? Really? And we wonder why we got problems? We don't believe the Bible is actually God's Word. We don't believe that, you know, 60, so that means what? Uh, 35% of the people don't believe that the Bible is real and don't believe that it's divinely inspired. Well, we just think, well, what do you think about it? Well, I don't know. You know, I think somebody wrote it. I think God may be involved there somewhere, but I don't know if you can actually take the Bible literally, and I don't believe the Bible is actually the Word of God. I don't know if I would say that. These are Christians talking. They surveyed Americans again, and 87% of Americans believe Jesus was a real person. So if we were to interview anybody in America, we could interview all kinds of different people, and they would say, you know what, I do believe Jesus was a real person. Historically, yes, I think he was a figure of history and all that other stuff. But only 53% believe he's actually God. That number's declined 14% in 20 years. So 20 years ago, 67% of Americans believed that Jesus was God. And we wonder why there's a cultural shift. We wonder why stress is up. We wonder why all of these crazy things are going on in our world, and we don't really seem to have a handle on it. You know, as we pull away, the, we create a vacuum. If you know anything about vacuums, anytime you create a vacuum, something inevitably will come into the vacuum to fill it. So when we move God out of the culture, and we move God out of the way, we create a vacuum. And something is going to come in and fill that vacuum. When you don't acknowledge God in your heart, or maybe you're here this morning, you say, nobody's even ever told me this stuff, Kevin, about Jesus. I don't really know anything about it. But, but, so you have a vacuum that's there because of an absence. Something is going to fill that. Hopelessness, anxiety, stress. The Bible actually answers it. Job 8 says this, those who forget God have no hope. That's pretty clear. If you forget God, you're without hope. What's it say? We're like grass that's growing without ground. Grass that has no water to keep it alive. That's what it says. There's growth. You know, people are growing. 
the world is going on. People are growing economically. Families are happening. All kinds of things happening. Things are growing, but there's no root or there's no ground underneath the growth. Things shift in a moment. Suddenly, everything withers. That's what the scripture says. Because we're growing and we're doing it without the Lord as the foundation. Even before it is cut, the grass dies. A man without God trusts in nothing. And everything he counts upon will collapse. All of his security will collapse. We see it today. I mean, we go back not even 10 years. Stock market turns upside down. Millions and billions of dollars were lost in a moment. That fast. That fast. And we trust in nothing. Jesus is the hope. He is hope. When we, when we as a culture, when we as a society, and when we as a people take God out of the equation and we say, go stand in the corner, we'll call you if we need you, that's a problem, right? And if you're here this morning and you say, man, I've just been living a hopeless life, I feel like that. I feel like everything that grows just withers and dies, grows, withers and dies, grows, withers and dies. Well, there's hope for you this morning because you can acknowledge Christ. And if you're a Christian here this morning and you're wondering why there's a growth and a dying, a growth and a dying, a growth and a dying, Probably because you've, re- you've relegated God outside of your life. And oftentimes what we do is we treat God as the man upstairs, big buddy Jesus. He just kind of sit there. My favorite's bellhop Jesus. Ding, ding, ding. Need some room service, Jesus. When you coming, bring it. Ham on rye. You know, hold the lettuce. Bring the tomato. Ding, ding, ding. Where is it? Where is it? Ding, ding, ding. We treat him like a bellhop. So the question is, is if stress creates hopelessness, then where does hope come from? It's a great question. If stress comes from hopelessness and anxiety, then where do we draw peace? The opposite of stress would be peace, right? Peace. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. Not the peace of the world, but a peace that passes understanding. That's what Philippians says. The peace that passes understanding guards our hearts and minds. Where does hope come from? Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for peace and well-being, not for disaster. To give you future and a hope. So God has a plan for you, and he wants to give you a future, and he wants to give you hope. He's already got a plan laid out. And in that plan, there's hope. Always hope. Psalm 121, this is David, the king, writing. And he says, I lift up my eyes to the hill. What's he saying? I raise my eyes above the circumstance. I raise my eyes above what I see. I raise my eyes above what I understand. Because that's where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord. And the Bible gets even more specific, right? As if it doesn't answer the question for us clear enough. Hope just doesn't come from God, right? What we teach is it's God as you understand him to be. It's not God as we understand him to be. It's God as he declares himself to be. And who does he declare himself to be? He said his name is Jesus. God has a name. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says he's the one true God. How can he say that if he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because they're compound in unity. Ihad is the word. It means they are three, but they're one. That's the great mystery. Next slide. First Timothy says, Christ Jesus is our hope. So Jesus is our hope. God, the hope comes from the Lord, and hope is found in Christ alone. And it's not just a hope. You know, when we think of hope, sometimes we think, well, you know, maybe it's going to happen, maybe it's not. I'm just kind of hoping. 
What we have in Jesus is not a hope that is a maybe hope. We have a certain hope. We have a sure hope. It says, Hebrews 6, 19, it says this. This hope is strong. When you hope in the Lord, Bible says, I'll, I'll give you another one. All who hope in the Lord will not be put to shame. That's a promise. All who hope in the Lord will never be put to shame. This is a strong hope and trustworthy and sure. It is an anchor for our souls. Jesus is the anchor for your soul. This is what happens. And what does this mean? It means storms come in life, right? Why is he liking it to an anchor? An anchor is what holds you steady against the current. And an anchor is also, when they drop the anchor in a storm, it helps to balance the ship during a storm. And God says, I'm giving you an anchor to hold you against the current. I'm giving you an anchor to balance you in the storm. And it's Jesus. And what does that look like? Right? Any fishermen here? Anybody like to fish? Yeah? Any boat guys? I go out in like a boat? Yeah, right back there. Come on. You go out in a boat, you go out in the water, you go out in the ocean, because see, we live on the ocean, near the ocean, you'd realize there's rivers in the ocean. There's currents, right? And those currents get really crazy. They take you out to sea if you're not, if you're not careful. You wonder, well, how did I get out here? You know? Because you didn't drop your anchor. There's currents within the culture. And what we are, Jesus is our hope. So as a Christian... And what happens when you come into Christ is now we anchor ourselves not in the currents of the world, not in the current beliefs and the fads of the day and the way people do things, but our anchor is in Jesus. So what does that mean? So what it means is, is that our life is a different type of reflection. Our anchor is in his kingdom and in his world. So people, everybody works. People work jobs. But, and they work jobs to get ahead. And they work jobs to get a promotion. And they work jobs to, you know, all sorts of things. We all work jobs. And the current of the culture is, is that it's, I use other people to get where I want to go. And it's all about me. And this is where I want it. This is, this is how I'm going to achieve. But what we're anchored in as a Christian is our attitude towards work is not that current. You understand? The, cur- the anchor of the Christian, what we hold fast on, is that we work our jobs, this is what the scripture says, to the glory of the Lord. So everything and anything that we're doing in our workplace is to bring glory and honor to him. Well, what's that look like? Show up, do your job, benefit others. It's not all about you. You're there to serve. And you know, we're, and we, and where the, the currents of the culture says, well, if I can get the boss to see me doing a good job, then I'll get promoted. What the Bible says is the Lord sees from heaven and he offers the promotion. He's the one who sees. And so we're not working for that guy or that gal or who that company or that corporation. We're working for the Lord. And he's the one that gives the promotion. He sees your faithfulness. He sees your consistency. He sees these things. And that's what we as believers are anchored in. Human relationships. The current of the culture is that we use relationships to benefit ourselves. It's all about me. What can you do for me? I don't want to be with you unless you can do something for me. You know, I don't want to be around you. I'm not going to be friends with you. I'm not going to marry you. I'm not going to be around you unless there's some great benefit for me. That's the current of the culture. And that's why relationships erode and they fall apart. The anchor of the kingdom is, is that this is not about me. The king, this, I don't, we, our anchor is we live to benefit others. It's what can I do for you? Like, okay, in a marriage, Sherry doesn't draw everything from me. She isn't looking at me going, what can I get from him? You're not meeting my needs, Kevin. We settled that a long time ago. 
I'm not going to meet her needs. I'm like, there's only one that can handle you, and his name's Jesus, right? And I'm the surrogate, but he's the one. He's the only one that's really going to gratify you and satisfy you. And I don't look to her to meet every one of my needs. What have you done for me lately? You need to do something. And now that's not to say that in human relationships there's not benefit, but that's not the goal. You understand? The goal of my relationship is not to get from her what I need. And the goal of her relationship with me is not for her to get from me what I need. We get it from the Lord, and we benefit each other. So here's what it looks like. My goal in my relationships with friends, my goal in my relationships with others, is to benefit them. That's where the Christian is anchored. What can I do to take you to the next level? And see, here's where we get into the selfishness. Well, if I lift you to the next level, that means I'm going to be left behind. Really? God honors those who do those things. So when, I, when, I, when I'm married to my wife, it's like, what can I do to benefit her? What is in her best interest? What is love towards her? And in her attitude towards me is not what can I get from Kevin, but what can I do to benefit him? And you see how the relationship works? And it's the same way that it works in the workplace, which works in friendships, which works everything. It's to benefit others. This is where the Christian is anchored. This is where we an- we're anchored in that kingdom. And we don't follow these, these, these rhythms and these cultures, these rivers that sweep people out to sea, and they don't know where they are. People end up out to sea, and they're like, how did I get here? How did I just blow this whole thing up? Or how did this whole thing get blown up? How did, how did this happen? Well, you, you, you're, you cut anchor, and you're drifting. So what does Jesus give to us? Okay, So we have an anchor for our soul. He holds us steady. Not only holds us steady, but he stabilizes us. And if hope comes from Jesus, what are the benefits of that hope? I'm glad you asked. There's lots of benefits to the hope. You have the hope of a meaningful purpose. Did you know that? And when you receive Christ, you are given the hope of a meaningful purpose. You, you have a purpose. There's a plan. There was a nurse, and she wrote as she was writing a blog for a while, and I took a couple of things off there, of things that she said when people were on there, when she was in uh, hospice care, and peop- what things that people regretted or wishes that they had when they were you know, in hospice. Some of them are this. I wish I would have done something more meaningful. This is what people say at the end of their life. I wish I would have done something that was more meaningful. I wish I would have lived with more joy and silliness. So you should be joyful and silly today, right? Because at the end of your life, you're going to regret your seriousness. And you're going to regret that you weren't more joyful and you weren't more silly. So you should be silly. I wish I would have lived with more joy and silliness. I wish I'd have taken the time to discover who I am. I wish I would have lived more courageously. All of these things are found in the Lord. You give a meaningful purpose. The Bible says we're his masterpiece. We're created new in Jesus to do the things that he planned long ago. There's a plan for you. Your plan is to come into his family and live according, and God blesses you. And you begin to live according to a meaningful plan. Matthew 16 says, what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? What does it matter if you gain everything but lose the thing that matters most? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? It tells us that our innermost being can be traded. Your innermost being can be given and traded and bought and sold. People sell their destiny. People sell their purpose. People do it. They trade it. 
I shared the story in first service. Like in Mesoamerica, which is kind of, you know, central and uh, Mexico, South America, and even uh, Central America, when the Spaniards came over here, they discovered something really amazing. The Indians were willing to sell their gold for glass beads. What a deal. So the Indians, the Spaniards would come over with glass beads and pots and pans, and the Indians would give them large amounts of gold for glass beads and pots and pans because the Indians didn't understand what it was that they had. They had no understanding of the value with what they had. And so they sold what was worth most for that which shined in the sun and that which meant something in the moment. We sell, oftentimes sell what matters most for things that matter only in the moment. God has a plan for you. So you have the hope of a meaningful purpose. Isn't that good news? You have the hope of belonging. Next slide. One of the number one, the number one cause of stress is money and job related. Number two is family and relationships. So you want to know where your stress comes from. Your stress comes from money and your job. You're all like, yeah. And then your second stress comes from relationship issues. Right? Whatever that looks like. Friends, family, husband, wife, son, daughter. That's the second level of stress. What happens is, is a lot of times people don't feel a, a, an acceptance and we have a deep hunger within us to belong. And not just to belong, but to belong to a family. In Christ, what happens is, is that Jesus gives you belonging in a family. You're called the family of God. Come on. John 1.12, as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God, even those who believe on his name. What does that mean? People say to me, we're all God's children. We are not. We are all God's creation, but we are not all God's children. Only those who receive Jesus are given the privilege, the honor, and the right to be called sons and daughters. And so if you receive Christ, you have an honor upon your life that people without him do not have. You're a son and a daughter. The rest of the world is God's creation. Does he take care of them? He, in yeah, basic ways. But the blessing and the inheritance belongs to the children. So we're not all God's children, but we are his creation. But in Christ, you're a son and a daughter. So what, what I told first service to do, and I think it's good for you guys too, is like, what a meditation. What would happen is if this week you just began to really understand and ask God, what does it mean to live my life as your daughter? What does it mean in your quiet time and in the space and just give yourself some time? What does it mean to live life as a son? What does it mean? What are the implications of that? What decisions should I make? What is it that's mine because I'm a son? How should I live? What choices should I make? What's the purpose of my life in relationship to my identity? That's our problem. We don't live according to our identity. And the problem we don't live according to our identity because most of us don't know who we are. We think, well, we're just somebody Jesus loves me. No, you're a daughter and a son. What does that mean? That's the question. And what does it mean to live your life in line with that? In the, old, in the old world, in the ancient world, sons and daughters, were, were their purpose was to expand the business of their father. They were to expand the family and expand the business of their father. They were to buy and, tra- buy and sell, trade and barter, all to expand the business of their father. Why did Jesus say, I'm about my father's business? Because that was the way of the ancient world. Jesus came and modeled for us what it looks like to be a son. One of the things he was doing, and it was to be about the father's business. 
expanding his business. Jesus knew what was his. Jesus was God who lowered himself as a man to show you and me what it looks like to follow him. That's the whole point. He became like us in order that we would follow him. His life on the earth was a model, in case you didn't know that. It was a model. It was how he, he modeled prayer. He even said when he was raising Lazarus from the dead, I don't need to pray out loud because I know you hear me, but because of everybody around me, I'm going to pray out loud. Why? So he could model it. He modeled life in the spirit. He modeled life in the kingdom. That's what he did. He followed the Father. He discerned the voice of the Father. He knew what was his by right. He knew what was his by inheritance. Do you know what's yours by right? Do you know what's yours by inheritance? Daughter, son of God, heir of an eternal kingdom? Just think about that for a minute. Think about what I just said. You are an heir of the eternal kingdom. Does that register with you? You're an heir of that world. An heir. Angels will serve you in that world. All that the Father has is yours. You say, well, I don't look like it because you don't know how to write the check, Christian. You don't know how to write the check. You don't even know what's in the account. You say, well, I don't know what's in the account because it begins with identity. That's where it begins. It all begins with identity, understanding who you are. You're not a son because you want to be. You're not a daughter because you're so wonderful that God just couldn't wait to make you a daughter. You're a daughter and a son because he is full of love. And he is looking for those to pour out his love upon. And he calls you to himself by grace and mercy. You, could, you didn't earn daughter. You didn't earn son. You know what that means? You, if you didn't earn it, which means you can't lose it. You get it? If it's given to you, you can't lose it. I didn't earn be, the right to be a son. He gave it to me. He gave it to me. You didn't earn the right to be a son. You didn't earn the right to be a daughter. It's given to you. What does that mean? That is the question. You understand how this works? We walk in the spirit. And so Jesus, in case you don't understand how sometimes the way I teach, Jesus would say profound things. And, and, and if you read some of the stuff he said, you're like, what the heck is he saying? And that's the point. That is exactly what he wants you to do. What? does this mean? When he says child of God, son, daughter, what does that mean? When he says heirs of eternal kingdom, ambassadors for Christ, when he says these things, what does that mean? That's the question that we have to ask. That's not going to come answered. Things, God, you know, he puts gold on the ground and he wants to see, is anybody going to dig for more? That's the kingdom. That's the principle of the kingdom. He puts, if you had oil bubbling up in your backyard, Gene, what would you do? What would you do? What would be the first thought you think? You think, hmm, what would you do? You dig for more. And so he lets the oil bubble up, or he shows you gold on the surface, and he wants to know, does anybody want to dig for more? There's more. Dig for more. In case you didn't know, the believer is a miner. We're searchers for gold. We look for the goodness and the glory of God everywhere we go. We release and activate the glory and the goodness of God everywhere we go. What we've learned and what we've taught Christians to do is to find dirt. It does not take a genius to find dirt in a gold mine. And so what we do is we run around and we're just all looking for the dirt, looking for the dirt, looking for the dirt in each other's lives, looking for the dirt, looking for the dirt. 
We're not called to look for dirt. We're called to look for gold. That's what we're looking for. It doesn't take a miner to find dirt. Anybody can find dirt. Where's the gold? Find the gold. That's the point. Where's the gold? Galatians says, if you're in Christ, you're Abraham's true children, and you're heirs according to the promise. What is the promise God made Abraham? He made him alive. The biggest one is, in blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply you. That's the biggest promise he made to Abraham, other than heirs of, an, of a great nation. He told him, you're going to be blessed in every way. That's what he's saying. You are the true children of Abraham. Abraham's children are not because of a bloodline, an earthly bloodline. Abraham's children, according to the promise, are those who have received the bloodline of Jesus Christ. You are the true children of Abraham. And you are heirs according to the promises that God made to Abraham. They're yours. What does that mean? Exactly. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. That's what we have to ask questions. Here again, we train Christians not to ask questions. Don't ask any questions. Just, just get the answer and don't ask any questions. When that is in fact, that is in complete contrast to who you are. You are a question. You know that? You're constantly asking questions. I don't know if you're aware of how many questions you ask and how, many, how you're always trying to reason things and calculate things because you're made as a question. The root word of huma, human is the same root word of the word manna. Manna means what? Same root in Hebrew. So you're made as a what? You're made as a question. You're created as a question. What does that mean? What does that mean? There, there's another question. It means, who am I? That's the question. What does it mean? Who is God? What is my purpose? What's the meaning of life? You're created to ask these questions. You're created by God to ask these questions. And you're created not only by God to ask these questions, you're created to inquire of Him according to those questions. He's the only one with the answers. I don't know if you know that. I don't have the answers. Dr. Phil don't have the answers. Oprah Winfrey doesn't have the answers. Jesus has the answers. And it comes through that relationship with Him. The third thing we have, we have not only the hope of belonging, you belong to a family. If you follow Christ, church should matter to you. Church is the restoration of family. Why? Because we all come from dysfunctional families. And you say, well, the church is dysfunctional. Yes, it is, and welcome to the family. That's right. The church, in the church, God has created a community where we serve one another. God has created a community where when one is weak, the other is strong, and when that one is weak, the other is strong. He's created a family, and it is inside the family within the church that we are remothered, refathered, rebrothered, resistered. We are more brothers and sisters than your earthly family. So you know that. According to the Bible, you say, no, 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 I'm real close with my brother. This is your brother. If your brother's in Christ, then that's true. But if your brother's not in Christ, then this is your family. They said, Jesus, your mom and dad, your mom and your brothers are at the door. They want to talk to you. And Jesus said, who are my mother? Who are my brothers? Who are they? Those that hear the word of God and do it. It's the family of believers. That's what we are. And we are to know, we are, we are to be known by our love, our agape, our servitude, one to the other. Church should matter. Church should matter. Why does church matter? Because it's the family. You know where most of your problems come? When you isolate yourself. Right? Everybody watch Discovery Channel? Yeah? You watch lions, how they hunt? Right? And I, I said first service, like, it's usually the women lions that are hunting. Right? The man lion's laying on his back, scratching. Where's that sandwich, huh? I want antelope tonight, honey. Get me some antelope. You know? It's usually the lion, the lionesses that are out there ready to hunt. And what they do is they hunt in packs or hunt in a pride. 
and one or two of them will run right into the herd. Boom, scatter the herd. And then they wait for the herd to reform. As soon as the herd reforms, there's always what? Come with stragglers. There's always one or two that go, hey, I kind of like it out here by myself. It's kind of cool. I like it. I do my own thing. Lion! Boom, down they go, you know, and that's it. That's usually what happens. That's how the enemy hunts. He drives the Christians. He divides. And he tries to isolate. And once he isolates, then that's where they go. And most of your problems come from that. I have people come to me, man, every time I'm connected to church and following Jesus, man, things are going, things go better for me. And when I move from church, it just all falls apart. I'm like, uh, duh. My pants are falling apart here. Duh. I'm about to come out. Woo! I tried to preach him right out of my pants here this morning. That pastor was talking so much about the Bible, his belt flew open, man. It was crazy. Anyway, we have a hope. We have a we have a hope of belonging to a family. You're created for family. You're com- created to commit and connect to a body of believers. That's how he formed you. You're a body. Say, I don't like it. Well, he didn't ask if you liked it. He said, "This is what we do." We have the hope of forgiveness. That's beautiful. You can't be forgiven without Christ. Nobody has the ability to have forgiveness apart from Jesus. There is no forgiveness. There is no mechanism in the world to relieve the guilt and shame upon a human heart other than Jesus Christ. There is no other. People cannot receive forgiveness of guilt and shame without Jesus. And we have people that live their entire lives under guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. There is no other part, there's no other way. But in Christ, what you have is you have not only have a you not only have a forgiveness into salvation. You have a continual fountain of forgiveness. Christians should never have guilt and shame. The only reason you carry guilt and shame is because you want to keep it. The Bible says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you every single time. Every single time. There should never be guilt and shame among the Christians. They're partying on me. We have forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have the hope of forgiveness. People are so afraid of being found out. You know, that's why we don't commit one to another's relationship. That's why people don't even want to come to the Lord, because they're like, if if Jesus really knew who I was, he wouldn't want me. No, he knows exactly who you are, and he wants you anyway. And if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't really like me. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. We are all sinners saved by grace, called to be sons and daughters. Nobody is better than the other person. You understand that? Different purposes, different callings, different mandates, different mantles, all that's true. But equal before the Lord in his family. You say, I'm messed up. So am I. You say, well, I'm not messed up. Well, yeah, you are. You got, you got problems too. So, you know, we all got problems. Join the party. We have the hope of forgiveness. Christians should live free. We should not carry around guilt and shame ever, ever. You say, I don't know, you don't know what I did. The Bible says Jesus knows everything. He already knows. So you may as well tell him and get, be clean. But without Christ, you cannot be forgiven. We carry guilt and shame. Humans carry guilt and shame. And they think that God's out to get them. They're like, if I came to him and he knew what I really did, he wouldn't want me. No, he knows exactly what you did and he wants you anyway. And that is such a beautiful thing. That's why grace is amazing. That's why it's amazing. 
Ephesians 1 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. According to the richness of His grace, your Heavenly Father is extraordinarily rich in every way. The greatest riches that He possesses is mercy and kindness. He's rich in gold and silver. You don't have to worry about that. He spins planets on His fingers. He has platinum. He has whatever. Whatever He needs at any time, it's there. He's rich in every way. But his, the greatest of his richness is in his mercy and his kindness. And here's something that will set you free, Christian. You don't have the ability to forgive unless God imparts it to you. Forgiveness is a divine act. Period. Humans do not possess the ability to forgive. Try it sometime. Just try it out. Try it. You say, I can forgive. And you know when you can't forgive because you've not been cut deep enough. There are cuts that will happen to you deeply that you will not be able to forgive without divine impartation. Because forgiveness is not of our nature. Forgiveness is a miracle. You understand that? That's miracle power. Here's what it looks like, right? So here it is, Sunday morning, we're worshiping. Feel the Spirit, man, wow. It's amazing. I forgive everybody. It's all good. Wonderful. Great time. Hey, fantastic. Monday comes. You know, you're not in the spirit immediately, or maybe you're not in the spirit at all that day. You want to kill them. You know what I'm saying? You're drawing their picture and putting it on a dartboard. You know, and then you start worshiping. You're like, oh, I just forgive them. It's not that big a deal. It's all good. It's all good. Then you're out of the spirit. Oh, I want to kill them. I want to kill them. You see where the you see where the power is? The power is in the spirit. The power is not of this world. The power of forgiveness is in the spirit. So when you want to forgive and you're feeling a hard time forgiving people, all you got to do is get in the spirit. And that power is there, and it flows. You got me? And we all have it. We're all that way. You know, if I mentioned a name or a color or a song or a place or a time to some of you, immediately you would react. Mm, you mentioned that person's name around me? It's Sunday, Kevin. I'm not trying to think about that person today. <laughs> but then when you're in the spirit, you're like, you know, it's all good. You know, God loves them. And I love them too. Forgiveness is a divine act. You should never beat yourself up because you can't forgive. Because you can't. And I know that cuts against the grain, but that's the truth. That forgiveness is miracle. It's miracle power. That's what it is. It's miracle power. So we get into miracle power, and boom, we can forgive. It's just important that you do that. If you're having a hard time with forgiveness, just get in the Spirit. Start worshiping. Get in the Spirit. Let the Lord come. Spirit come. Forgiveness will happen. Anybody ever feel bondage to forgive unforgiveness? You know what I mean? It's like you just can't stop thinking about anything, but God, I just want to, you know, all day long, you got like got a job, but you're just like, I just want to, you know. Maybe that's going to, maybe you guys are more spiritual than me, you know, perhaps, but I've had things happen to me and done things in my past and, you know, where I have issues even with myself. I can't get past things that I've done or stupid choices that I made. Why did you do this? Oh, my gosh, it was such a dumb thing. Why did you do that? You know, and then you get in the spirit and the Lord's like, it's all good, Kevin. I got it. It's all good. This is what it, this is, this is, this is your inheritance. I'm showing you aspects of your inheritance. I'm showing you what is available to you. People without Christ don't have this. They don't have cleansing. They don't have forgiveness. They don't operate in this. They don't have it. They don't have it. But if you're in Christ, you have it. The hope of forgiveness. So he forgives, he cleanses, he gives you a new heart, he gives you a new beginning. And guess what? His mercies are new every morning. 
tell people to tape that on the, on the mirror. Yesterday ended last night, and you can put the verse up. His mercies are new every morning. Because it's true. In Jesus, you got a brand new day every single day. Every single day. How good is that, man? You see why there's freedom as a believer? We are to be the freest people in the world. Because we get a new day every day. A new beginning, a new hope, a new power, a new purpose. We have access to divine love. We have access to divine forgiveness. We have access to divine power in the Spirit. That's the key. Fourth thing is he gives you a hope of a certain future. This is important. If you're here this morning and you know, you're a Christian, but if you're not a Christian, if you were to die today, would you know where you would go? Do you have any idea where you would go? And here's often, these are the arguments of the culture. This is what people will say. Well, they'll say, well, you know, Kevin, I'm a good person. And so I believe that my good is going to outweigh my bad. And when I get before God, if there is a God, if there is a heaven, if there is a Jesus, if there's a Buddha, if there's a Krishna, whoever he may be, if he's there at all, maybe it's Tom Cruise. I'm not really sure. If it is, you know, I'm going to ask for his autograph. But when I get before whoever it may be in whatever time that is, my good's going to outweigh my bad, and when my good outweighs my bad, well, of course I'll get into heaven or I'll, if there is an afterlife. People, it's called the cosmic scales. I always ask people, how are you doing with that? Who decides what, what's good and what's bad? Who decides, you know, how are you doing? You don't know. You don't know. In Christ, you can know. And people say, oh, no, I'm going to be reincarnated. No, I'm not. If I don't make it around the first time, I'll get reincarnated, and I'll keep going around until I do make it. No, you won't. Here's, here's the most amazing thing to me. Everybody that talks about reincarnation, if you've ever talked to anyone, and I, I guess I do, they've always were somebody famous in their first life. Nobody was a pig in their first life. Everybody was a queen, a king, or somebody important, a warrior. Yeah, I was a warrior. Yeah, I saved my people, and then I got killed. And now I'm reincarnated here. Really? I've never met a reincarnated pig. I was a pig, man. I just know I was. I get around, I get around pigs, I just want to start getting in there and, and snorting with them because I think I was a pig in the life before. Everybody say this with me. This is Hebrews. It is appointed for all people to die once and then to face judgment. We die one time. There is no recurring life and 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 life. You got one. You got one. And we stand before judgment. All will be judged. The Christian is judged to be blessed. You understand that? So when you come to Christ, there's no condemnation. He never condemns you. He's not looking to do anything bad to you. You come before Jesus, you actually go before a different throne. You go through a throne, the Bible says it's a bema seat. It's a rainbow throne. So we go before there, and there's like rainbows and butterflies and all kinds of, you know, crazy, wonderful, happy things happening. And the per- when we stand, be- when I stand before the Lord, and if you're a believer, you stand before the Lord, and the Lord looks at you for one reason, to see how he can bless you. You get eternal life, but your reward is based upon what you did in this one. You receive Jesus, you get the kingdom. Flat out. It's yours. But you're rewarded getting bonus, Jesus levels you up when he looks at your life and sees what you did in this world. That's why it says the things that are done in secret in the kingdom will be proclaimed from the housetop. What nobody noticed you did for Jesus, God said, I will have the angels shout it from the rooftops. 
the reward. You bring somebody to Christ, you will not lose your reward. You give a prophet a cup of cold water, you will not lose your reward. It has nothing to do with salvation. It's called super bonus day. That's what that day is. When you stand before the Lord, it's super bonus day. Whatever you've given for Jesus. Corinthians says your works will be tried by fire. What you did for yourself is hay, wood, and stubble. Poof, gone. You'll inherit the kingdom, the Bible says, but by fire. In other words, you get in, but you didn't bring anything with you. And whatever you did for the Lord is refined, and it's given as gold and silver. And you get to take it with you. That's how the Bible is giving us a picture of what that looks like. It's speaking to us in a way so that we can understand it. Is it literally going to be like that? I don't know. I just know the Bible, when God speaks prophetically, he speaks in metaphors, and he speaks in ways so that we, with our limited understanding, can get the concept that he's trying to get across to us. We die one time, and then we stand before judgment. You're going to be judged for your good. Christian, if you're not living for Jesus, today's your day to start. All in. What do I need to do? Where do I need to start? What is it that I, what is it God's put upon my heart that I need to start doing? And it's not an issue of earning anything. You don't earn his, his, his love. He loves you whether you do it or not. But the Bible says, let us run that we may receive a prize. That's the point. Some of you are competitive. You like to win. Nobody's going to lose. You're never going to lose. You know, we're going to keep playing this game until I win, right? Anybody play with people, play games, board games with people like that, right? They're horrible to play Monopoly with. Do not play Monopoly. Monopoly is not good for marriages, by the way. I do not encourage Monopoly as a bonding experience at all, at least not in my household. Monopoly has not worked very well at all. But the Bible is telling us to run. That we, God says, I put this out in front of you. Do you want it? You're saved, you're born again, yeah, get the kingdom, that's all, that's all given, but here is a reward that you can have, do you want it? Run for it then, run for it. And it tells you not only run for it, it tells you to get rid of everything that, st that stands in the way. Greeks used to run naked, that's the image that Paul, I'm not telling you to run naked, but you know, hey, you know, you are free, but not that free. You might get arrested if you do that, but anyway. The, but the point was is that they would take off everything that slowed them down, and they would run so that they could win. That's what Scripture is saying. God's put prizes out in front of us. Door number one, door number two, door number three, door number four, whatever it is. And he's saying, does anybody want it? Then run for it. Run for it. And you say, well, I can't run for it. That means you've got to get rid of some things in your life if you're going to run for those prizes. That's what he's saying. Cast aside the things that are getting in your way because there's lots of things that get in your way. Can we agree? What do you want? I would rather have what you get in that world is yours forever. What you have in this one, when you die, it goes to somebody else. You say, no, no, man, a U-Haul van's going to follow me when they bury me. Well, the U-Haul van can follow you. Look at the Egyptian pharaohs. That didn't do them a lot of good. They got buried with all this stuff. Profited them nothing, right? They're all in a museum now. But what you get in that world is yours forever. Somebody says, well, I'm going to be reincarnated. And other people go, no, 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 no. When I die, I'm just going to be getting nothing. I'm just going to go back to the dirt. Nothing happens, Kevin. Life ends not true. Ecclesiastes says, to the dust you will return, as it was, the body, and the spirit returns to the Lord who gave it. So while it is true your body goes to the earth, your spirit lives forever. What is your spirit? That's who you are. That's that person inside of you that you kind of look at and go, who am I? What am I? What's going on here? Why am I moving? This is crazy. What is this person in me? That's your spirit. It returns to the Lord who gave it. So you're not going to be reincarnated. Sorry. I don't believe that. Well, I, I don't believe in gravity. 
But I can tell you, if I got up on the roof and I jumped, gravity would prove itself to me whether I believe in it or not. You know? Eternity is not predicated on our beliefs. Eternity is truth. And what God is telling us to do is line up with truth. We teach relativism, relativism in our culture. It's whatever you believe is what's real. Well, I believe I'm going to be reincarnated, therefore that's real. That's a lie. Well, I believe when I die, nothing's going to happen, therefore it's real. That's a lie. Those are lies. Relativism does not apply to biblical truth. It's truth. Here we go. Revelation. So now, Pastor Kevin gets to talk about things that is not is very uncommon in the church. What's lost in our culture today is the church has stopped preaching the gospel. We have levels of stress, levels of godlessness, levels of things that have invaded our society. We have stress levels, hopelessness, and we relegate God over to the corner because we think he's nothing more than big brother. We think it's nice Jesus. Jesus, you go stand over there, and when I need you, I'll call you. We confess Jesus as Savior, but we don't confess him as Lord. That's a problem. That's a problem. He is Adonai. He is Lord. We bow our knee. We get the picture? That's the point. That's the, that's the gospel. That's the truth of the gospel. I'm not saying that's like a friendly gospel, that, but that is the gospel. We acknowledge the king. Honor the king. All that I am for all that you are. You are Lord Jesus. And so what happens here is the people believe that nothing is going to happen. This is what happens to the people who do not know Christ. Al Gore, I think, coined the phrase, an inconvenient truth. But I think that phrase was coined a lot further back in time in the Bible. This is an inconvenient truth, but it's true. If you do not acknowledge Jesus, you are eternally lost. You say, I don't believe that. It does not matter what you believe. If you, that is the truth. It says, then I saw a white throne and him who, who sat upon it. This is Jesus at the end of the age, sitting in the seat of judgment. Not of the believer, of the unbeliever. This is the judgment of the unbeliever. And so when Jesus takes this position, I want you to notice what happened. This is kind, loving, shepherd, fairy Jesus that we preach in America. He sits down upon his throne, and the face of the earth and the heavens turn away. What? He's sitting as judge. And when Jesus takes that posture, heaven and earth freak out. Oh, my gosh. He's taking this posture. I just read an article by one of Ronald Reagan's sons, and he said, I'm a pronounced atheist, and if there's a hell, I'm surely going to burn in it. What an arrogant statement. What an arrogant statement. When salvation is offered to you, forgiveness is offered to you, how can we be so arrogant as to say such things as that? Jesus sits on a throne, and he declares, and the heaven and earth turn away, and he says, I see the dead, small and great, standing before him. So well, here's all the dead, small and great, that didn't receive Christ standing in front of him. The books are open. There's multiple books, books of deeds and books of life. I always note that. There's plural books here, people. He's looking at them, and they're like, oh, they're not in the book of life, so let's see what their deeds are. And they, the sinner accounts for their deeds without Christ. That's what it says. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. And anyone who was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's an inconvenient truth. This is what brought people to Christ for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. The Bible says, by the fear of the Lord, men depart evil. Men repent. Men and women come to Christ when they fear the Lord. 
not fear that he's going to hurt them or harm them like he's some wicked God, but they fear the judgment that's on their life. Without Jesus, there's judgment on you. You're a sinner born into sin. Christ came like you so that you could become like him. Somebody said, I, I saw this at Easter time, and I'm sure it went over real well. I said, I saw, uh, um, this is the gospel. I just want to let you know this is what the gospel is. The gospel is, you are lost, you need Jesus. In Christ, there is life eternal. In Christ, there is hope, there is purpose, there is destiny. All hope is found in Christ. That's the gospel. Without Christ, there is no hope. There is no hope. There is only the illusion. I said at Easter time, I said, uh, I watched an interview with Franklin Graham, and he was being interviewed on um, Larry King. And Larry King goes, well, how can God be loving if he sends people to hell? And uh, Franklin Graham goes, well, if you want to get biblical, if you want to know what the Bible says, he's throwing them there. He's not sending them there. He's throwing them. And you say, well, why would God do that? Because God sent the Son. God became man. You want to talk about condescending? The divine God of the universe became like us. He lowered himself as low as he could go. Not just by becoming like us, but becoming a servant to us. Washing our feet. Coming into every aspect of our dirty, filthy, rotten, uh, fallen world. And we live in an insulated world here in America, but if you go, if anybody here is from a third world country, and if you're not from a third world country, just Google some of the places around the world, and you'll see that it's not a very clean, safe place. And so God condescended himself and came into our world. He became like us, died brutally on a cross, and he hung naked. Naked they hung him, beaten, bruised, and murdered. He's proclaimed this gospel around the world. He's called mankind around the world to come to him. He's pronounced it. And when men reject it, when men and women reject it, there is no, there is no more salvation for them. You've reject, the Bible says you have trampled the Son of God underfoot, treated the blood of the covenant as a common thing, and there remains now and therefore no more hope for you. And they're cast from his presence. There will be no pleading in that day. There will be no borrowing in that day. There will be no reasoning in that day. There will be no grace in that day. Grace is gone at this point. The Bible says all that remains is the assurity of judgment. This is what the scripture says. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, this message is for you. This is for you. It can't get any clearer. You say, oh, no, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day, maybe next week. We're promised many things, but we are not promised tomorrow. Jesus even told his disciples, don't say tomorrow I'm going to do this and tomorrow I'm going to do that. Today. And it says in Hebrews, today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Not tomorrow. If you're in Christ, you have the inheritance of the kingdom. You have the joy of the Lord. You are free. But this is life without him. With me, without me. Or with me, without me. With me, without me. That's the idea. He says if you believe in your heart, you say, well, how do I confess Christ? How do I do this, Kevin? If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and is risen from the dead, you'll be saved. It's that simple. Your heart and your mouth, not your head. Very important. Because we try to think, well, I don't understand this. I don't think. He didn't tell you to understand it. He told you to believe it. And if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, today is your day. You're saved from sin. You're saved from judgment. You're saved from shame. You're saved from condemnation. And you're saved from a self-destructive nature. That's what it means. Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no other. 
There was one rock star, and his name was Jesus. There was one superstar, and his name was Jesus. There was one God, and his name was Jesus. There was one Savior, and his name was Jesus. There's only one. One way, one door, one path, way, truth, and life. No one else except through Christ. So if you're here this morning and you've never done that, today's the day, man. Today's the day. Today's the day. So we're going to pray. We're going to close this service with a prayer. The Bible says when you come into the kingdom, it says your, your heart is like a door. And Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. He knocks at the door of your heart. He says if you open the door of your heart, he's going to come in with you. He's, and it says he's going to have dinner with you. The idea is communion, common union with you. So if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus, we're going to pray together as a church. And I'm going to ask you to just simply open your heart and pray this prayer with us. that's you, don't hold back. You may be sweating. You may be looking at the door. Your heart may be beating out of your chest. That's you. I'm talking to you. That's the Spirit of God dealing with you. Just release yourself to that. And just pray and open your heart. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I believe you are the Savior and you are the Lord. I may not understand it, but I choose to believe it. I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name. You say, is that it? No, that's the start of it. That's what it means to be. Yeah, come on, we can clap. We're good. It's what it means to be born again. So right now what we're going to do, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to pray over you one more time. That was, that was um, a great thing. I, we have, uh, I think, we, we have a tent out there? There's a tent? So there's a party tent out there. So we're going to party with you. And it, there's hot dogs. There's going to be snow cones. And if you need your, and once your family fortress, they're going to be in that room right there. And there'll be a sign-up sheet. And so let me bless you. Let me speak life over you one more time. And then let's just go have a good time. So may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you.